0: Once again, I saw that vacuous smile of Roy Cohn plastered on his face, though just for a brief moment. Benny, Benny, you're not thinking clearly. Let me set you straight. Consider the end point, my friend. That's the only thing that matters. Think of the end point and play for the long term, for the win. Remember, no one gives a shit about losers. People only care about winners, and I, Roy M. Cohn, am and will always be a winner. Here's the big picture, Ben. Ruth Greenglass is a non-entity, a nobody. The government has nothing to gain from prosecuting her. But I'm certain that Ethel, when I break her, will be a goldmine of evidence for our cause. Nobody keeps track of the Kremlin spy networks in this country like she does. I want them to become aware that there is a direct link between what went on then and what's going on in a place like Congress now.
1: Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin mustful and today I am delighted to be joined by Cy Stein, author of the novel A Time for Lies.
0: I feel every line that I write. Uh, every line is there's some associated emotion.
1: Sy Stein comes from suburban New York City and still lives in the area. After a successful career in medical oncology, he returned to his first love, historical fiction. He has written four works of historical fiction. Two are set in Ancient Rome, The Medicus Codex and Becoming Caligula. His other two works are alternate World War II era histories, Rockets Red Glare and his newest, a McCarthy-era thriller, A Time for Lies. Praised for its historical accuracy, diverse characters, and believable dialogue, Stein's work reads like commercial page-turners while exploring an unexplored historical question. How do amoral, narcissistic individuals achieve power, and how do normal individuals trapped in their orbit survive? Today, I'll be talking with Sai about his new novel, A Time for Lies. So to start out, I wonder if you could tell us about the historical context for the novel, both worldwide and in the United States? Certainly. So in 1945, World War II ended.
0: Uh, At that particular point in time, we were allies of the Soviet Union, and that quickly devolved to a point where not only weren't we allies, but we actually became their mortal enemies. And as the Cold War developed, it became clear that the Russians had set up a network of spies in the United States that was doing our national security some serious damage. And there were many Americans who uh, were in high positions in government who were actually spying for the Kremlin. Included among these spies were Julius and Ethel Rosenberg of Manhattan. They had a relative named David Greenglass, who was Ethel's brother, And he was working out at Los Alamos. Los Alamos was where a good deal of atomic research was done and where the first two atomic bombs were formulated, or not formulated, but actually constructed. David Greenglass had agreed to provide information through to various couriers who then sent their information on to New York, where Stalin's agents picked it up. And from there, the information went right to the Kremlin. Rosenbergs carried on their espionage until the year 1950, when they were uncovered. They were brought to trial in 1951, and there was an outcry in this country about potential uh, communist infiltration into government, into the military, and into several other uh, important government operations. Leading the, the passion was Joe McCarthy, a junior senator from Washington. And McCarthy became a, a very public figure around the year 1950. And he was holding hearings in Washington, looking to expose any communist influence that he found in, in government. Roy Cohn was a very young man at the time. He In 1951, Roy Cohn was only 24 years old, having been born in 1927. Roy Cohn joined the office of the district attorney for the Southern District of New York. And that's where the Rosenbergs were being tried. And that's where Roy Cohn first came to national attention by being one of the people who questioned the Rosenbergs on the witness stand.
1: So can you talk more about McCarthyism and the just how much it 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 influenced America at that time and just how, I mean, give us a sense for, for what a huge event it was.
0: I would say that uh, McCarthyism was probably one of the biggest shows in America in the entire 20th century. And I don't mean that facetiously, it was, McCarthy was a dangerous character because he knew how to use smear techniques and um, name calling and um, threats and lies to intimidate uh, witnesses who came before his subcommittee. And Roy Cohn was right there learning the the trade from Joe McCarthy. At the time in the United States, there was what was called the communist scare. There were reds under the beds. Uh, People were on the lookout for communists everywhere. And it became very disruptive and extremely um, deleterious to the careers of a large number of people who, in fact, very few, if anybody, was, was ever put in jail by McCarthy because by that time, the communists had been rooted out of the government but there are a lot of people who lost jobs, they lost careers, they lost their homes, they lost their families. If you were accused by McCarthy or by Roy Cohn, you were gonna have a lot of trouble in your very near future. So it it was not a good time to, um, to fall under their gaze at all.
1: Well, I'm familiar with Senator McCarthy and McCarthyism, but I'm not familiar with Roy Cohn. Why do you think that is? that he's lesser known in this history?
0: You know, that's a a good question. Um, The fact of the matter is that I think the reason is because Joe McCarthy had the power. Roy Cohn was his assistant. Interestingly enough, Bobby Kennedy was another another, uh, assistant of McCarthy. He left there after about six months. Roy Cohn didn't last that long either. He left after the Army McCarthy hearings, which were in 1954. But McCarthy had the power, and he had a lot of senators completely buffaloed, not only of his own party, but the Democrats also. He had a great deal of support from the heartland of the country, but he even had support in a, in a, a state like Massachusetts, which you wouldn't think of being a big McCarthy supporter, but it, it was. People were very afraid of him. He evoked a lot of emotions among people. Uh, I think emotions that have lasted till his day. Roy Cohen didn't really do that. He was, I think he was just too young and he didn't have the power at the time.
1: And what about Benny Peskin, your main character? Um, Who was he and how did you use him to tell this story?
0: So, Benny Peskin is the younger brother of a man named Sid Peskin. And Sid was a character in. My first book in this series, Rockets Red Glare, Benny is about 10 years younger than Sid, and he was brought up in the Bronx, also extremely intelligent, like his brother and like Ray Cohn. He also went to Columbia. He became a lawyer. Sid became a nuclear physicist and was critical in the formation of the atomic bomb. Now, this is all fictional, of course. Benny went to law school. Uh, graduated at the top of his class, and Roy Cohn, who was in the same class as Benny, remembered him and When Roy had a position available in district attorney's office for the Southern District of New York, Benny was hired. Benny's the kind of guy who wants to be socially mobile he wants to he wants to climb uphill, but he joins up with Roy Cohn on the idea that, he, that this is what Roy is going to provide for him. Unfortunately, he finds out that Roy is not everything that he appeared to be when he first made the decision to, to work uh, in Roy's office. Because Roy, in my opinion, of course, I wasn't there to interview him, although I did meet him at one point in time. Uh, Roy, in my opinion, was a malignant narcissist. And Benny slowly, slowly uh, begins to realize that this is the case. And I'm not going to give away the book by saying what happens after that.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the alternate history element of both A Time for Lies and Rocket's Red Glare and why you chose to go that route instead of just straight historical fiction?
0: Ah, uh, Well, you know, it, it, it gives me... More room, frankly, for my imagination. Um, How could things have worked out? What if Franklin Roosevelt had died? Not at the time he did, but several years before. What happened? What would happen if the Germans took over Great Britain? Uh, What would happen if the people who were actually so critical in formulating the theory behind the atomic bomb were actually captured by? Fascist forces in the America that came about after the passing of Roosevelt. That's really why I, I love the histor the uh, alternate history uh, angle. Sid is uh, Sid Peskin is Benny's older brother, as I mentioned. I particularly like Sid because he's able to talk to a lot of people that uh, I'm not sure in historical fiction. Uh, I, I really could have had the same types of conversations, but particularly the conversations he had with Albert Einstein and others, including Fermi. Uh, I also changed a great deal about how the atomic uh, bomb was first conceived and the ideas reduced to practice. The atomic pile that I that I spoke of in *Rockets Red Glare* is not the atomic pile that Fermi built in Chicago. They built theirs in. Los Alamos, actually. They had to get there, which was a whole other problem. Uh, but that's, you know, that's the approach I took, and I, and I was very happy to have done it that way.
1: Were you ever, you know, after doing so much research, were you ever tempted to write nonfiction? Um, did you know right away that you were going to make this into a fiction novel?
0: I actually knew right away I was going to make it into a fiction novel. The, the amount of research that one has to do, I think, to write a, a serious nonfiction book is is just tremendous, and it's it's something at my stage of life and at my stage of career. I I just wasn't prepared to do. I'm not sure I'll ever be prepared to do it. It's it's amazing what um, what serious writers of of history do, the sources they have to go to. You look at a book like Nicholas von Hoffman's Citizen Cone. It's it's magisterial. It is a, literally a Roy Cohn encyclopedia. So. You know, not, not being able to best that or even come close, I think, I decided to stick with what I could do, which was to write this alternate historical fiction.
1: Well, let's talk about the, the stage of your career. You came from a career in medicine and and now you're a novelist. Um, why, you know, I mean, did you always want to be a novelist even while working in medicine or when when did that come about?
0: Well, I'll tell you a, a little uh, story about about me, a personal story. History was my first love, and I can remember reading a book about Thomas More, the English politician, when I was in the third grade. And to my understanding, to my uh, to my astonishment, I actually understood the book. So it must have been for it must have been for children. But I read it. I enjoyed it, and I read many other books of of history when I was a child and when I was a young adult. And then I went to college, and I got seized by the science bug. And um, I eventually went to graduate school and got a PhD in chemistry because I was I just fell in love with chemistry. I'm still in love with chemistry, but I didn't. I decided that that's probably not the way I wanted to spend my life. And uh, I did what my parents always wanted me to do, was, which was to become a doctor. And that's how I spent the last roughly 45 years of my life. Uh, But I also, in addition to being a practicing physician, I was also a research scientist. And uh, however, my love for history remained constant throughout my entire life. And when I finally retired from my career, I decided that this is the thing to do for me, and uh, I've published four books so far.
1: Well, you talked about how challenging it must be to write a nonfiction book. Um, but what about the 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 craft of fiction? What about the science of storytelling? Was that difficult for you to learn, and what was that process like for you?
0: I had the good fortune of learning. A great deal about this from my cousin who is a professional writer and about 30 years ago we together wrote a book which was a fictionalized account of some experiences that i had and i learned a great deal as to how these stories are crafted And i think without that knowledge without that learning i could not have have done what i did i seem to have assimilated it and um, been able to to bring it forth in the writing of the various uh, books of historical fiction that I've published so far um, and you know it's uh, Stephen King said something about how a lot of a lot of uh, novel writing has to do with what the what the boys in the basement are doing and I think that's true for me it's a lot of it is the boys in the basement and I just let them let him rip and uh try to listen to what they're telling me. But the truth of the matter is also is that there is a conscious crafting of the novel that you have to do. Um, you, have to, you have to know when to, um, or how rather, to put in your backstory. Your backstory has to jibe with what your main story is. Uh, your characters have to be consistent in their voice and in their interactions with other people. and uh, and many other things. And all of that, I learned as I was doing. Um, I wrote a a novel, which I call Novel Zero, which was uh, roundly condemned by everybody who read it. And I think in retrospect, appropriately so. Uh, But I took all their criticisms to heart and uh, did a much better job in successive, successive appearances.
1: Uh, What about the publishing process for you? Um, Did you have aspirations of landing a six-figure book book deal? um, Or did you have other ideas of of just just getting a book out there any way you could?
0: Well, I'll tell you. um, That first book I did with my cousin, we did land a six-figure book deal. But I figured that the world had changed since then dramatically. And I, after the first book that uh, I actually published. I And I had an agent, but things just never seemed to work out. And I pretty much gave up on all those ideas. And I said, look, let's just get it out and uh, let people read it and be satisfied with that. I'm not looking for, I'm not really looking for the money. If it happens, that's wonderful. If it doesn't happen, listen, I had a whole career before this. And uh, I made a few, I made a few
1: shekels. So you have a PhD in, in a forty-five year career in medicine, and you're doing all this research for these historical novels. But um, fiction, ha- you know, is about pulling out emotional truths. Can you talk about combining that that connection between intellect and emotion and the balance between the two? Uh,
0: I I think I can, although my writing career has certainly been. Heavily influenced by a, a lifetime in science. But you're, what you said is absolutely correct. And emotion is a very, very important part of fiction. And the truth is, and this may sound a little bit uh, odd to people who are more sophisticated than I am about these things, but I feel every line that I write. Uh, every line is there's some associated emotion teasing out the emotions of the various characters is also very important to me. And it's particularly important in a book like this because what I was trying to show about Roy Cohn is that so many of the reasons, I think, that he was a very amoral individual is because of his conflicts. Uh, He had many conflicts, I believe. He had conflicts about his religion. He had conflicts about his sexuality. And this all comes up. It bubbles up time and time again whenever you uh, look at information about him, as Nicholas von Hoffman did, or when you try to write about him, those conflicts come up, and you're just wondering, what is, this, what is this man really thinking? So I try to get into his head to try to understand what he's thinking. It's very hard to do. It's very hard to get into anybody else's head.
1: And besides being an engrossing historical thriller for the reader, what do you want them to come away with from this novel, A Time for Lies, and what what can they learn or become more aware of about our present moment?
0: I want them to become aware that there is a direct link between what went on then and what's going on in a place like Congress now. Uh, Roy Cohn was a student of McCarthy. He learned from the master. And Roy Cohn's student is Donald Trump. And so many of the techniques that Roy Cohn learned from McCarthy, he taught Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has used them to very, very good effect. But they come from Roy Cohn and ultimately come from Joe McCarthy. So the past... The past is not past. In fact, it may not even be present. It may, unfortunately, be future, although I hope not. Um, But that's, I want people to know that's where it comes from. Now, I don't say that McCarthy was the first person ever to use such tactics. I think Goebbels figured it out a long time before McCarthy did. And I don't know where McCarthy got it from, but wherever he got it from, he passed it along. And what we see now is part of of what we see now is what McCarthy passed along and what Roy Cohn passed along. I'd like people to know that.
1: I wanna read a statement that you wrote, I believe. Uh, The history of the period provides the superstructure of the work the fictional characters must reside in, interact with, and shape it. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah. Um, You're in a position
0: where there are events that are happening which are affecting hundreds of millions of people. Uh, That's the superstructure. But exactly how they're going to affect all these people is changed dramatically by the people who are in control. And unfortunately, in control, you have two people who are probably malignant narcissists. That's probably one of the reasons they got along so well, McCarthy and Roy Cohn. And they took it over, and they shaped it and molded it into the way they thought it should be. And as a result, we had a red scare, and we had lots of people losing their jobs and we had people who still remained so terrified that i can remember it from the mid 60s when i was growing up so i think you know i think that's a pretty good definition of of uh of what i wrote
1: yeah it's, it's it seems like it's a way of of making history relatable by by narrowing it down to to a few people um, even though it may affect the, you know, a, a much broader array of of time and, and culture and all those things.
0: I think you're right. And, you know, of course, Cone and McCarthy weren't the only two people who were misbehaving. There were others, but the ones who really stand out as uh, really the top guys in so much of the the sheer nonsense that was going on in the early 50s in this country were those two. And they had their enablers, that's for sure. There were plenty of them. But after a while, the the show ran out of steam, and as all shows do. After a while, and after a while, nobody could stand them. And after a while, even Eisenhower, who bent over backwards to try to accommodate McCarthy, because I think he was somewhat afraid of him also. After a while, even Eisenhower couldn't take it anymore. And uh, that's when things started getting rough for those two. And eventually they uh, they got booted.
1: Well, we've been talking, of course, about your newest novel, A Time for Lies. But can you tell us a little bit, just briefly, about some of your other novels, specifically the Medicus Codex and Becoming Caligula? So I'll talk about uh, Becoming Caligula
0: first. Becoming Caligula is set uh, in at two times both in the era of Caligula and uh, his predecessor, Tiberius. And it's also set in the third century. Uh, But I will concentrate on the setting in the time of Caligula. Uh, Caligula has a good friend named Sylvanus. And the novel is based on his interactions with Caligula and what he has to deal with when he has to deal with a malignant narcissist and has no choice because Caligula, as he became older and more powerful and eventually became emperor, certainly, uh, I th- in my opinion, was, was exactly that, a malignant narcissist who was capable of killing his best friends uh, almost at a whim. And um, how Sylvanas manages to deal with this is really the thrust of the book when Sylvanus himself is under enormous stress. For instance, he winds up getting sent to the mines of Spain for getting on the wrong side of one of the major enemies of the family, which is the the character Sejanus or Sejanus, who many people have heard of. Um, This book was uh, given the award of one of the top 100 books of 2021 by Kirkus Reviews, and it also uh, won a, uh, a uh, award in the uh, International Booksellers Competition. Uh, Medicus Codex is set in the third century, and it deals with a young man uh, whose name is Aaron, who decides that he doesn't like his life in a, in a ruined... Environment in Galilee, which the Romans had plowed over about a hundred years previously, and he decides he's going to go to Rome to become a physician and to study with the greatest living physician of the Roman of Roman times, and probably of all time until the Renaissance, and that is a man named Galen. Galen is an old man at the time and he doesn't want any more students. He's also so much, somewhat prejudiced against people who come from that area of the world. Uh, but uh, eventually, uh, he, the, uh, the character Aaron signs on, changes his name, gets into a lot of trouble, and eventually, and I won't exactly say how, he's rescued and uh, goes, eventually winds up back in Rome as the physician-in-chief, to some of the Severan women who were at the top of the empire. They were the wives and mothers and grandmothers of the emperors. And uh, he attains a position of great influence and becomes the chief physician to the wackiest Roman emperor of them all, uh, a boy, actually. He was no more than 14 years old when he started reigning and 18 years old when they unceremoniously let him go. His name was Elagabalus. And Boy, was he a crazy, crazy young man. Uh, And that was actually a lot of fun to write. I enjoyed myself thoroughly when I wrote that. It's been in print for a number of years, and uh, I hope people like it.
1: Well, it piqued my interest because uh, we have a title here at History Through Fiction called The King's Anatomist. It's about Andreas Vesalius, um, who was greatly influenced by Galen. Uh, so, Ron Blumenfeld, the author, if you're listening, and I know he listens to all our episodes, I'm sure you'll want to get that book to the Medicus Codex.
0: In fact, when I was speaking, uh, when I was when I said the word Renaissance, the man I was thinking of was Asaelius.
1: Okay. So, do you have another novel in the works?
0: Well, yes, there's another one in the works. Uh, I'm not sure what the title is going to be, but it's. I think it's going to take the story of Benny a little bit into the future and he is going to have a have a run-in with john birch society and some of its founders particularly a man named fred coke you may be familiar with the coke family they're among the richest people in the world the lake david and his brother charles they run coke industries the father was a man named fred and fred was one of the founders of the john birch society which is a right-wing organization, very right-wing organization in the late 1950s and up until the early 70s when it kind of dissipated. Um, but I'm going to change things around a little bit about what what some of their message was. So I'm having fun doing it and uh, hopefully it'll be ready I'm not too distant future.
1: Well, Cy, congratulations on A Time for Lies, on this new career of yours or second career, whatever you might want to call it. And Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Colin. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, Oh, now I remember what I was going to ask.